In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Oh, it's disgusting! Disgusting! Revolting! I saw somebody spit once on a plane. In the middle of the plane, he was actually spat on the seat in front of him. Incredible! So, would you ever be in someone's company when they do it? No. You wouldn't, be, you wouldn't have the opportunity to call someone out in it, really? Certainly not, no. What's your opinion of someone spitting? I really couldn't care less if somebody spat in the street. She hates it. Would you be fond of a spit yourself from time to time? Uh, well, she, you would say that I would. <laughs> I caught him doing it once. Once, when he didn't know I was there. <laughs> I've never been forgiven. It's <laughs> just excess saliva in the mouth, is it, or just a habit? I can't even remember. <laughs> I don't know. But it's not a habit, isn't it? No, no, no. I don't spit all the time, no. no. Not, not when she's lucky, innit? No. no, no. <laughs> Definitely not. But no, I've never noticed anybody spitting in the street and thought anything about it. So, I get off my life. I can't say I have, no. I only notice it really when people are playing sport or exercising. That's it. And if you're walking down the street now with your buggy and you saw someone spit, how does it make you feel? I think it's quite rude and unpleasant, yeah. I don't think there's a place for it on the street. No, I haven't seen anyone spitting. Don't like it at all. And have you ever been in someone's company when they do it? Like, have you ever called them out in it? Uh, yeah, I've seen some do it. It happened a lot on sites, so, yeah. So, yeah, I wouldn't like it at all. Because you end up putting your hand in it or something, you know? Just rubbing it off a tool or something? Yeah, just, it's on your hand, and then you have to come wash your hands, and, well, it's disgusting. It's not something I've seen in a long time. Um, it was very common years ago, but not so much now. And how would you feel now if someone, you were sitting on the bench here beside you and someone spat down on the ground? I wouldn't be hugely impressed. Yeah, in fact, would I, would I challenge him over it? Big question. No, but I'd, I'd probably just move away. Josh Crosby reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, for generations, makeup has been seen as a girl's only activity. But you know what? It hasn't always been the case. People, well, I suppose, go, yeah, the Egyptians, they, uh, they use makeup. Uh, you know, they would have seen pictures of pharaohs and eyeliner and the like. But, but there seems to have been far more to it than that. Yes, for sure. We have the Vikings, who were such pretty boys, obsessed with their beauty. The Hwarang, who are an assassin group in 600s Korea. We have uh, King Louis XIV, as we know. We have a, a, a Mayan king ruler named Ki Inch Janab Pakal. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, but it's almost as if history isn't showing uh, the, the, the softer side of these leaders as if it is something that makes them weaker or less than. I mean, let's talk about the Vikings just really quickly. Yeah. They were so obsessed with their beauty. They had grooming kits right next to their swords and their shields. And they had soft brushes, not only for their beards, but separate brushes for their hair. And these were custom made. Uh, they would bathe every Saturday. This was a ritual. It was called Logger Dog. And it was literally called Bathing Day. And this was during a time when bathing was sacrilegious to different European countries. And they would dunk their bodies. They would shine their hair. They would color their hair. And it was very fascinating to know that these macho men, I mean, we know throughout history, Vikings were very intimidating, uh, over six foot tall, but they were also these soft men who cared so much about their inner and outer beauty because that made them powerful. And would they do things, either the Vikings or any other people you mentioned there, would they do things like exfoliate and think about their, their skin? 
Oh, absolutely. Like the Vikings had soaps and different uh, life soaps and, and hair uh, products to really exfoliate. Um, we're, when we're talking about exfoliation, I mean, every single uh, person in history who bathed loved to exfoliate. And let's talk about the Korean Hwarang that I mentioned before. These were pretty boy warriors that were chosen for their beauty by the king. The king was a fervent believer of Buddhist ideals. And so when the most powerful god died, which is called Maitreya, uh, Maitreya was a pretty boy. And so the king believed that his pretty boy spirit was still in the ground. And the spirit was then input into young men beautiful mm. men. And so he went across the country and found the fiercest looking guys and had them join his his army. And they're called the Hwarang, which translates to pretty men, translates to flower boys. And they uh, really did their entire careers um, beautify as a spiritual practice. But they were fierce warriors who were amazing at swordsmanship and also at the art of killing and the art of being on the battlefield. But yes, they too exfoliated. Uh, so th- when we come though to the Enlightenment period, uh, and there's this mm-hmm. thing that's referred to as the Great Renunciation, which is uh, the Great Male res- Renunciation, I should say, because mm-hmm. up to that point, people didn't really think about gender differences uh, as extremely perhaps as they did afterwards. Exactly. I mean, the Enlightenment period or the age of reason, scientific, political and philosophical discourse um, really became de rigueur throughout European society. And reason was a primary source of authority, legitimacy. Um, You know, Thomas Lacker, historian, notes that it was during this period that it was important for these thinkers to publish a female skeleton. Now, why was this so essential? Um, No one was much interested in looking for evidence of two distinct sexes until it became politically important, he writes. And so this was the first time where men could say, okay, how do we gain power in our society? We're going to show that the female skeleton and therefore the female brain, because the skull is smaller, is much less developed. And so during this time period was when men became more learned and women were told that they had no place in that. The Great Male Renunciation was a pivotal moment in which a historian in 1929 named John C. Flugel, uh, who was also a psychologist, Um, He pinpoints this time in which male identity and expectations became defined and separated by the gender binary. And it was a time when men, quote, abandoned their claim to be considered beautiful and henceforth aimed at only being useful. So any of these, um, you know, softer qualities like wearing makeup. I mean, before this time period, we need to understand that the macaroni of Great Britain were like the influencers of these days, the the day. Macaroni men, they wore makeup, they wore blush and lipsticks and and high wigs and and tighter fitting clothing. But right after that, with the Enlightenment period, that was abolished, that was considered feminine, which was then considered uh, to be uh, frivolous when it came to these discourses around politics and philosophy and science that they were obsessed with. And so this was really the period when the gender binary became so distinct and then men stopped wearing makeup. What an interesting history, writer and entrepreneur David Joy from Moncrief. Personally, myself, I'm not on drugs, but without these services, the place would be an awful lot worse. I know people are all against drugs, but they're keeping like diseases down. 
a man who's been homeless in Dublin for almost two months, giving me his thoughts on the outreach services operating throughout the city. On International Overdose Awareness Day, the Analiffy Drug Project launched the first mobile harm reduction unit of its kind, the Vanaliffy. Chief Executive of the charity, Tony Duffin, showed me around the van and explains what it will provide. It's a harm reduction unit, which basically means it's a mobile unit that we're able to take our services that we would normally provide on a fixed-sized basis or maybe on a backpacking basis, walking the streets of Dublin. We're able to bring this unit into an area where there's an identified problem. I must show you the service. I'll just get in here and, and give you a, try and describe it for you. So, right... Yeah, it's an ambulance which hasn't been adapted. We've taken the trolley out, so we don't need that, but it's got three seats in it that staff or service users can sit on. It's got its usual... I'm just going to climb up in here. I'll just show you. We keep our... In those cupboards, we've got the, the likes, the, the needles and syringes, the citric, the alcohol wipes that we will give people to use so that they can inject themselves safely. It's a really good way of engaging people. We, we have something that they, that they want and they need, and we're able to provide that with the support, obviously, of the HSE. We were able to provide the, that equipment and then engage, really engage with people at a very meaningful level so that you know we're looking for them to make healthier choices around their lifestyle. And you're yeah. mentioning harm reduction. Would an Outreach service like this be the next best solution to a, a supervised injection facility? Then? This, this is not a, su- a mobile supervised injection facility, so it's not that. Uh, and what would you say to critics who might say that this kind of normalises drug use in one way? Or? There's no way we normalise drug use. I mean, my team are uh, excellent and engaging with people. If there's no engagement with people, then there's nothing there. You can't move people through. So this is the beginning. This is the first step. Clean needles, crack pipes, help and advice being offered on wheels around the city four times a week. Dr Austin O'Carroll is an inner city GP who's been working with the homeless since 2003. He founded a separate outreach service more than 10 years ago and says it's the best way of reaching those who are most vulnerable. This is a really critical service because recently we conducted a review of mortality and homelessness and we found the single biggest cause by far was drug addiction and that includes overdose and spread of infections. So having a service that goes out providing harm reduction measures such as naloxone treatment, such as information on uh, the risks of drug use, such as needle exchange, etc., so that people can have clean needles and not be spreading infection is a really, really critical service at this time. What would be some of the main benefits of a a model like this, a mobile unit, compared to your stationary clinic? I've been working in homelessness and developed many homeless services, and we know homeless people don't come to you. They hate going to to the general uh, mainstream services, and you need to go to them. Because if you want to deliver proper harm reduction, you need to go where they are. It is the most effective way to deliver services, and this is recognised internationally. What are some of the main issues you're coming across when you're treating people who are homeless? The biggest issue by far is drug addiction and the effects of drug addiction. The effects of drug addiction include people getting skin abscesses, getting groin abscesses, losing weight, ending up in hospital due to uh, infection in the lungs, getting HIV, getting hepatitis, losing their homes, losing their jobs, losing their families and finally death. Those who are working on the front line know the importance and value of such a service as a mobile harm reduction unit. For people who have been drug users and those who still are, what do they think of it and how badly needed is it? I'm clean 20 years. As an ex-drug user, what do you think of services providing sterile and clean equipment? Jeez, oh without it, the AIDS epidemic would have spread like wildflower and plus corona. But it didn't because of the services that were still open 
providing sterilised and clean hands and masks. I'm on drugs 20 years, okay? I started on heroin and then when my daughter died, I went on crack cocaine. I'm a needle in me right now as I'm talking to you. Josh Crosby reporting for News Talk Breakfast. On Thursday, Donald Trump's former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, joined Kieran Cudahy on the hard shoulder. Lots of people who left that White House and left that administration, some of your former colleagues have written books. And of course, there's all these anecdotes in them, juicy anecdotes, which they used to sell the books, admittedly. But if you had to say one thing that, that they all of those books had in common, it was this picture of chaos that they painted behind the scenes. How accurate was that picture? No, in fact, I can probably guarantee you there's less chaos in the Trump White House than there is in the Biden White House right now. Um, and I know that would make some folks in Washington cringe, but they cringe because they, they know it's true. What you're seeing right now in Afghanistan happens because of, of disorganization and chaos in a White House, a White House that's poorly run. Did we have issues? Sure. Every White House does. But everything you do is on the front pages. But everything you do leads the news at seven o'clock at night. Every single place you go for dinner ends up in the newspaper. I mean, I couldn't go out for a beer after work without having an article written about it in The Washington Post the next day. Um, When you do that, sometimes it's going to look chaotic. Um, But I can assure you when it came to running the government, um, I thought we did a damn good job. I've got a lot of uh, questions um, here from my European friends. I've been over here now for three weeks as to why the U.S. hasn't opened up more to Europe for travel. And the bottom line is because they don't know how to run the government over there. They're not good at running the government. You can complain about Donald Trump's personality all you want. And I may join you on some of those things. You may you may dislike many of his policies, as many Democrats do. But we ran a damn good government. Um, Things worked. Um, and I, I would be more than happy. It must have got fairly chaotic. Look, I I understand you're, you're. on your way back to the private sector, still a card-carrying Republican, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. sure. But the idea that the Biden administration is more chaotic as of what's going on. I mean, we, you, two impeachment processes to deal with he had while in office. There was the yeah. whole Trump-Ukraine scandal. There was various times there was Black Lives Matter as that w- w- was kicking off. Sure. There was a conspiracy theories promoted at different times by the president. I mean, there was all the Russian interference and, uh, uh, and all of that and... and uh, and the Mueller report, I mean, it must have been chaotic. This idea that like it, it was kind of a well-oiled machine in the background and it's all falling apart under Joe Biden is nonsense, isn't it? No, it's not. Chaos is when people don't know what to do and they can't get things done. Everything you just described is pretty much was imposed on us from the outside. Chaos to me, I'm the chief of staff of the White House. Chaos to me is when meetings aren't taking place at the right time, when policies aren't getting done, when the wrong people are getting to meet the president, when we when we should be meeting with this foreign leader and we are not. It's the runnings of government. Mm. The fact that a bunch of Democrats want to impeach us doesn't impact on chaos. Did we have personnel turnover? Yeah, okay. But I don't think the Biden administration has confirmed a single uh, ambassador yet. Not one. I, I may be wrong because, again, I've been overseas for about three weeks. But the, when I, last time I checked, they had not confirmed a single ambassador. It's now September. That's what I talk about in terms of chaos and the running of a government. Again, you can complain about style. You can complain about policy. But when it comes to the, to the workings of the administrative branch of government, we were better at it than they are proving to be in their first nine months in office. What an interesting take. Mick Mulvaney from The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. Your retirement from football then and the horrendous injury uh, you picked up, for some reason in my head, I've always assumed you would sort of come back and uh, saw your playing days the way you would have wanted. Like that injury, (laughs) mm, was it, you were what, 29 at the time? 
Uh, I just turned 30, yeah. Just turned like 30, yeah. Months after my birthday, yeah. It seems you knew pretty quickly that this wasn't just a broken leg, a serious injury that you could recover from in the normal scheme of things, a six-month absence and you're back, that actually this was going to be something that actually was going to threaten your career? No, I, I, at the time, I didn't know that it was going to terminate my career or end my career. I, I knew it was a serious injury, but um, uh, I tried very hard to, to get back and to come back, and uh, I did everything I could with, uh, with the doctors and the physios. Uh, but I think it was probably at some point after 15, 16 months, just, just, just a little time before I then officially retired, uh, where you know thoughts started creeping into my head that I might actually not be able to play anymore. Uh, but I did try. I knew it wasn't a just straightforward uh, fracture. Um, but it's one of those things in life, you know. It, it was probably meant to be that I, I had to finish my football career earlier than uh, expected or <laughs> planned. But you know, life goes on, and then you try to reinvent yourself and. Uh, look at what options you have in life and, uh, and start uh, maybe a new chapter in your life. Were you able to think about it with that sort of calm thought process at the time, that this is the end of one I chapter was, uh, and the start of another? Uh, it's, it's easy to talk about it now. Right. But I, I went through a really difficult, difficult time. You know, it was very, very tough. Physically, it was tough. You know, I had a lot of operations. Mentally, it was tough. Uh, suffered from depression. Uh, but I eventually I recovered from everything and uh, um, and then you, time helps to heal and uh, you kind of try very hard to forget about it, what happens in the past and you and I'm a person that likes to focus uh, on, on the future so that really helped me and uh, I started over and uh, I, I tried to do something different and uh, and then eventually I find I found my way and something that I enjoyed and liked and then what happened? Nathan Murphy and Roberto Di Matteo from Off The Ball. So over the decades, the application process has become much more automated. At the beginning, it was maybe just uploading online CVs and the like and some very simple search criteria on that. But we've seen a, a lot more of a shift towards a greater use of artificial intelligence and in searching those CVs for keywords and trying to identify those those candidates that might be best suited to shortlisting for roles. How common, I suppose, are algorithms now in employment procedures and what risks do they pose? I think there's no doubt that, that the whole area of workforce analytics has become a far bigger part of the HR infrastructure. So, so some data would suggest that, that in 2022, the expected spend on workforce analytics is about a billion dollars. And true to 2025, the expectation is that will increase to about $1.8 or $1.9 billion. So this is a hugely expanding field, and that expansion is happening at pace. So we're seeing a lot more use of technology in, in HR processes. So, for example, in recruitment, how can I try and identify those candidates that would be a best fit for a role? And of course, there's massive opportunities there in terms of streamlining processes, but it also comes with an element of risk. And we've seen a number of high-profile cases over the last number of years where organizations have introduced these types of analytics to their hiring processes and have had to put them on hold or, or, or stop them completely because they found that biases that they had already had in their hiring were being replicated in the analytics 
because in effect, all, all artificial intelligence do is, is they learn a pattern in the data and they replicate that pattern. Biased software choosing people based on previous data could be viewed as the digital version of judging a book by its cover. But in today's world, with Silicon Valley and others shaking up the conventional work model, some surprising questions can now be asked during an interview. I once got asked if I were a flower, what flower would I be? Which isn't even that strange, but I thought it was quite a nice question. What was your answer? I said, I think I said a pansy. Pansy, because they're little, sweet, but they're actually quite mighty. And they're very colourful. I think colourful's good. So yeah, that's that's what I was. And were they happy with the answer? They or loved did it. You get yeah, the job? I think I I think I elaborated more than that. But yeah, I did get the job. So that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who works on a bus, and she was asked at her interview how tall she was because she wouldn't be able to fit on the bus if she was over 5'11". From working in the bus, did she find out that this was actually a valid enough question? Oh, absolutely, because I asked her, could I get a job there? And she said I was too tall, so I wouldn't fit on the bus. They said I'd get back problems if I was to work on the bus from crouching down. So, no bus for me. I was once asked how many window cleaners it would take to clean all the windows in Belfast. I don't know what the answer was. I think I tried to guess how many many high-rises there were. I just, like, threw something random out. Was it a job that involved engineering? It was a programming job, (laughs) so... I don't know. I got the job, so I must answer pretty well, but I don't know how I came to the answer. <laughs> yeah, once I was interviewing for like a what is a horse box coffee shop type of a thing, I was being very professional, all the rest of it. And your man asks me, oh, so like, you know, how often would you come in late in the morning? Like, oh, I don't mind, I don't mind, we all do it. I just want to know, like, just so we can plan around it. And obviously the answer is, you know, never. <laughs> so, yeah, I was really taken aback by that. Did you feel like you were being judged? Did he, like, assume that you were into your parties and late nights? No, I think it was kind of more telling on his side. Yeah, that was a bit of a weird one. It's been a long time since I had a job interview, but I... Just listen to younger people. I think the mad thing about job interviews now is that people are afraid to ask the key question. The first question that should come to mind, how much are the wages? And that shows you the type of society we're living in, where young people in particular have uh, no real opportunities to get decent paid jobs. And you feel that they're afraid to ask, whereas compared to before, would it be in the question? I, I don't know, they're, they're afraid to ask because they think if they ask the question that they might think that, oh, these are a bit radical, a bit kind of militant and we don't want that type. I had this one experience where I was sort of like assumed to have more skills than I did. So my dad got me this job. The guy was like, do you, do you know computers? And I kind of said, yeah, because like I knew of computers. They put me like in like the head of like the design website team. I got the job, but I didn't take it because if I, I knew that if I actually went into work every day and I tried to do anything, they'd fire me. Have you ever been asked any kind of strange or bizarre questions? No, no. But my brother was asked what his spirit animal was or something. And he said that he was a penguin. <laughs> From flowers to spirit animals, getting to the core of someone's personality is being asked in peculiar ways. But if it works, it works. Now more than ever, those job hunting need to be prepared for the unexpected and companies need to operate their systems in a healthy manner. For the latest advice in the Irish market, a recruiter and a professor of HR have the answers. So what I'd say first and foremost, Josh, is is preparation. Like it's a fairly obvious bit of advice to give, but it's very, very important. So do your research on the company, do your research on the job spec. So the best way to, to get that is ask your agency. So FRS Recruitment would always give out a job spec. Know your CV 
and again this sounds very very obvious but some people go into an interview and not know their CV or they might get mixed up on dates so be fully sure on the dates the companies you've worked with and the the details of your own jobs and then I suppose finally what you can bring to the organisation so know exactly what they're looking for and what you can bring or what, what value you can add. So really it's about being very, very careful and deliberate about the kind of data that you use to train the algorithms, really carefully monitoring those data, ensuring that that there's some human intervention and you're not solely relying on the the data for the decision making. I think there's certainly some kind of high level things that decision makers need to take into account in using analytics for HR decision making. Preparation and good governance are key for those applying and those hiring. But when people first get that call to say there's an interview on the cards, how does it make them feel? We We both literally just had interviews Just like half an hour. Uh, (laughs) And yeah, grand. You feeling positive after the... Yeah, good. She got the job and I've got to try and should... I'll get the job, I'll get the job. (laughs) Josh Crosby reporting for The Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cudahy. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Okay, now next question is, what's going on in my head when I'm under... Am I dreaming? No, you're not. You're not dreaming. Your um, your brain is effectively switched off under anaesthesia. Your your neurons are there, but they're not talking to each other, so they're not transmitting messages to each other in any way, shape, or form. So it's like turning off the lights in, in your brain. There's no dreaming. It's not like normal sleep, um, and you don't remember anything either. So it's effectively all but your most um, uh, necessary function of functions of your body continue but your brain is switched off effectively so that's why you don't remember anything and that's one of the reasons we're there the whole time to make sure that you don't remember anything so when i'm under what are you watching for so we watch for well we've got lots of monitors so we all the regular things that you might see in your gp's office or if you've ever been to a hospital so we watch for your blood pressure your heart rate your temperature um, your CO2 levels, your, um, your, your, your oxygen saturations. So we look at all these things in real time continuously. So we're hit with these sort of data points, thousands of them in, in any given operation. So we're looking for patterns or changes in those vital signs that sort of tell us how you're responding to the surgery or how the surge, what the surgeon is doing, how that might be affecting you as well. So we're there to make adjustments. We're there to make sure everything is, is plain sailing and Strangely, what we do is kind of the opposite of what you might do in that you are here to entertain people. We actually crave boredom in the operating theatre. When everything's (laughs) going well, we just want to sit there and look at lovely straight lines, uh, knowing that everything's going well at that point. You're also able to observe what's going on in the theatre itself. There are many actors in the theatre and that must be quite interesting. Well, you're correct, because that's why, I mean, Gasman, the book is full basically of my observations of people and uh, other staff within the hospital because when everything's going very nicely and smoothly during your anaesthetic you do have time to observe what's going on so Gasman is my observations of you know interactions with myself and the kids um, myself and parents myself and the porters and the cleaning staff and our lovely little special relationship that the anaesthetists have with surgeons so I describe a lot of these uh, sort of little nuanced interactions that you won't be privy to when you're anaesthetised in the operating theatre. 
Mm. Um, of course, this is uh, heavily disguised because you can't actually, due to patient confidentiality, uh, you can't actually name patients or even give such identifiers that the, the, their nearest and dearest would say, oh, that was me or that was her or that was him. Um, however, it might be harder to, to disguise your colleagues in your book. How did you cope with that? <laughs> well, the book's been out since last Thursday, so already in work, um, people have been coming up to me going, is that me you're talking about? Is that me? And then a few people have most certainly recognised themselves immediately. So um, I'm not taking anyone to the cleaners. It's all very lighthearted. I'm not insulting any of my colleagues and they're all still talking to me. So um, let's hope that continues. Yeah, they might be slow readers. They haven't got to the bit yet. They haven't got to their <laughs> About bit which. yet. Yeah, we'll, we'll check in next week and see who's uh, who's turning with cold shoulder to me in the corridor. Now, um, some of the things people, you know, look at you and they know that your life is in, in your hands. Uh, and yet, if anything goes wrong from an anaesthetic point of view, if they just expire, mm. they know nothing about it. I mean, it's... From the point of view of the victim, if you like, it's not a bad way to go. For the point of view of those who survive and are looking at their loved one who is lost in this way, it's uh, obviously very traumatic. So what kind of things do people say to you just before they go under? Well, I mean, I don't want to terrify anyone. Dying under anaesthesia or expiring, as you describe it, is super, super rare. It's incredibly rare for someone to actually die on the operating table. So... From that perspective, we don't have to deal with that, thankfully, too often. I mean, 99.999% of people wake up after their surgery. But it's absolutely normal and terrifying for people to to think that this might happen during an operation, which is why it's such a profound moment for everybody. I think, you know, you can you can grasp a conversation with a surgeon and you build a rapport with them in the outpatients where they describe an operation, they can draw pictures, etc., etc. But us are profession's quite nebulous people don't understand it so handing over the sort of control of themselves and their faculties to a complete stranger is challenging for people so they do ask us sure. most 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 commonly they ask us um am i going to wake up you know and all i can do is try and ensure that they trust me that's the main thing the rapport yeah. that you build with the anesthetist is all about trust and you know it's a difficult leap what for about people to take the, the, the other question, it's not whether I'll wake up or not. It's whether I'll wake up during surgery and I wake up to see these people gathered around my abdomen with scalpels and other terrifying apparatus and I'm wide awake. Yeah, and perhaps I've got <laughs> things stuck in my nose and stuck in my gob and I can't say a word. Yeah, and I might even, I might not be able to move. You've been watching too many horror stories, I think, uh, past that. Uh, I mean, theoretically, that is a possibility, but uh, in reality, that doesn't happen. That that makes for great news stories and for great um, horror films and things like that. But I think sometimes, you know, when you're coming out of anaesthesia, when you're emerging from a state of anaesthesia, you will start to hear things before you're fully awake. But that's normal. That's what we expect. And occasionally, I think some people who are having sedation for procedures like endoscopies may expect to be fully anaesthetized, but they're not. They have sedation on yeah. board, so they may confuse the two and um, it, it just doesn't yeah. happen. Author Colin Black from The Pat Kenny Show.
And you would have heard it there on the news headlines. That young man, Kieran, uh, got, I think he got 613 points, didn't get the course he wanted, and he is not alone. A lot of disappointment for top students, yes, in, uh, including those apparently who got 625 points, and that's the maximum points you can get, uh, and didn't get the course they wanted. We're going to be talking uh, in a few moments to the Labour TD and spokesperson of education, uh, Aon Reardon, and John Walsh, former advisor to Education Minister uh, Rory Quinn. But, Kira, before all that, we we have a problem. We need to talk about the Leaving Cert. We need to talk about points because the system is devalued. The system is discredited if you get 625 points and you're not able to get the course that you want. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think accredited grades, unfortunately, have been a failure because it isn't it isn't right and it isn't reasonable that somebody gets who gets a H1 in every single subject can't get into the course that they want. And I think it's unfortunate, but it doesn't give me any confidence going forward. We've heard so much over the last number of years about the unfairness of the written exam and we have to do away with it and move towards continuous assessment. However, the accredited grades were based off of continuous assessments and it turns out that teachers maybe, maybe, you know, wanting to be nice were too willing to give top grades and unfortunately we have a glut of students, some of whom probably deserve to have the top grades, some of whom may not have deserved to get the top grades, all they're kind of coalescing at the top of the, of the food chain, not able to get into the courses they want. If we're not able to actually give accurate accredited grades, what hope do we have of, of changing the Leaving Cert? What hope do we have of continuous assessment working? This is not fair on kids and I think it is so unfair that kids have missed out on, on their courses and the system has failed here. Yeah, look, I mean, I think it's really, really difficult for for teachers. I think there'll be teachers in some schools maybe who last year played strictly by the rules and maybe saw other schools being a lot more generous and who kind of thought this year, well, I'm not going to disadvantage um, students in this school uh, this year. I, I, I do think there's a difference between marking continuous assessment where you have specific projects and specific essays and actually giving an accredited grade. But look, there is an issue there. The other big issue, though, Kira, is how do we roll back this? Because of grade inflation, the system is discredited, it's devalued. You cannot have a situation where you get 625 points and don't get the course you want. How do we roll that back? And how do you do it in a way that doesn't really disadvantage the students of 2022 and 2023? Because inevitably, like if you put the brakes on now and say, OK, we're going back to where we were in 2019, which was a lot less people getting the absolute top points, that is going to um, that is going to hit those who are coming in the next year or two. I'm not sure there's an alternative to that, though, Kira. Well, Professor Damien Merchant, when we spoke to him at around seven in the programme, said all we can do is go straight back, just a guillotine coming down and just do away with great inflation. No, no sort of lag time or no easing our way out of it. But look, let us know, what do we do now about grade inflation? We have devalued the value of a 625-point leaving cert. If you can't get into dentistry and you can't get into medicine with it, what does that mean? And what, what does it mean going forward if continuous assessment is not going to be fair and equitable for all students? Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast. Now, this week, Future Proof explored the science of consciousness. Here's Jonathan McRae and Dr. Anil Seth. There is this thing um, that that sort of rang a bell with me when I read the book. This, um, I don't know where I, I picked it up. So maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't. This idea that we um, we we have this idea as humans that we are happy and then we smile, um, but actually that effect can be reversed. That we can smile and make ourselves happier. Um, and, and I can't remember what it was, but I, I remember being struck by the idea of it 
and that it was not something it wasn't just wishy-washy they they you know they measured stress hormones they measured you know uh, hormones in the brain and it seemed to suggest that our our feelings are not necessarily a product of our our our, our emotional state or our physical state and vice versa it, i mean does that pose any questions for consciousness i think it's a very interesting part of it and and the point that you raise, this idea about how much smiling might relate to happiness, uh, there's that, there is, I think, two ways to look at that. There is a slightly wishy-washy way. There's this sort of idea that if you stick a pencil in your mouth so that it forces you to smile, then you just feel happier. That kind of stuff, I think, really is a bit wishy-washy. Mm. But the deeper truth underlying that is how emotion works in general. And what I explore in the book and actually a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last 10 years or so has been trying to understand emotion as a kind of perception too. It's a very old idea. It goes back to William James in the 19th century. But my take on it, my sort of new take on it, is that emotion works in just the same way that our perception of the outside world works too. It's another kind of controlled hallucination. When I experience visually a, a car, a red car across the road, my brain is making a best guess about the causes of all the light that hits my eye. And it best guess is that it's a red car. When I feel an emotion, what's happening is that my brain is making a best guess. It's making an estimate of what caused the sensory signals that come from within the body. It's a perception of the physiological condition of the body. Hmm. So the example that William James gives is that if you, it's all about grizzly bears. I don't really know how common grizzly bears it's are. Grizzly bears it. or saber-toothed tigers. That's the if we're ever talking about like humans and emotions and evolution, those two things pop up. All exactly, the time. exactly. But just imagine you see a grizzly bear and you feel afraid, and your body also starts to to alter. It gets itself ready to run away or to fight. Adrenaline starts coursing through your your blood. Your blood pressure rises. You might think that it's the sight of the bear that causes the emotion and the emotion causes the changes in the body that then allow you to run away. But what James says, and, and what I think is going on too, is that you see the bear and immediately your body changes, adrenaline starts coursing and, and so on. And it's the perception of those changes in the body that is the emotion of fear. And it's built by the brain in exactly the same way through this controlled uh, predictive perception as are our experiences of the outside world. Some fascinating insights there from neuroscientist Ansel Seth from Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. And of course, you can tune into Jonathan every Saturday afternoon from 12 till 1. Let me bring in Ronan as well. Brian O'Dwyer is with us and Brian is the, he's the former chairman of the Emerald Isle Immigration Centre but he's also actually in New York at the moment. Um, Brian, what were your memories of, of, of the, uh, the incident and when it happened? Well, it was, it, was, it was a surreal day. Actually, I was in Washington the day it, it, it happened and um, right across from the Capitol and, and we always assumed that that would have been the place where the the plane that went down in Shankill would have was was aiming for um and uh but it was a, it was a you know it was something nobody could really understand i mean we had first heard the news and someone said that a plane crashed into the world trade center and we had assumed it was it was going to be something like the king kong movie where there was just you know there had been a plane years ago a small plane that had crashed into the 
Empire State Building and nobody really knew, you know, was was just an accident, no big deal. And that's what we all thought. And then, of course, then we heard about the second one. And then then we heard they both of the both of the um, both of the plate, both of the towers were, were coming down. So it, it was it was uh, it, it was surreal. It was unbelievable. Um, and there was nothing that that in our lives that had really uh, prepared us for that. And uh, and as Ronan said, I mean the consequences were that that in the next thirty days we um, our office was about to maybe ten blocks away from the World Trade Center. We were shut down for at least a half at least 30 days or 45 days. But as I said, it didn't really very much because we weren't doing anything in those days except going to funeral masses for people that were involved either uh, because the Irish American community was the, was the community that was most affected Mm. uh, because of this, because uh, both the police and the firemen who were mostly Irish Americans, people in finance in the, in the world trade center, um, you know, it was people in the Irish Americans going up the stairs to rescue were greeted by Irish Americans going down the stairs to get out, and it was a so it was a devastating effect on our community. The, the, I ca- the, the panic that you know would have ensued after with people not being able to make calls home, and you know you heard Ronan mention about opening up the business to let people come in and use the landline. And we spoke to Sonia here in the show earlier. She just happened to be in New York on holidays with her boyfriend, met a complete stranger in the park who you know brought her into her home and let her use her her phone. Um, did the did the immigration centre did did that have a role in, in all of this as well, Brian? Absolutely, because we had we had people um, not that particular day, the day after we were entering, because New York, you know, the, the New York was shut down basically for a week at least uh, afterwards. You couldn't get in, you couldn't get out, um, and and the cell phones were down, and there was some you know some power down, and it was uh, it wasn't just the first day; it was every day thereafter, mm-hmm. and and our job was to try and get people who so that they could call home to Ireland and get, because so, cause obviously there were a number of people that were um, affected and, and people, that you just couldn't get hold of anybody and get a sense of, that you were all right. Yeah. And uh, that was what we did for, for the community. Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. On Saturday, Down to Business explored the business of family feuds, and it got really interesting. Here's Bobby Kerr and Liam Collins. And when we look at when we look at Liam, I suppose the morals of the story, and there are a few. So, the first one is like: is this dynamic at play in all families, but just that there isn't as much money involved? Uh, I, I think there's a bit of that. that I think there is. Uh, of course, there is. I mean, we all know uh, families that have fallen out for various reasons, but I think. Um, business. If if families are in business together, it uh, you know it magnifies the difficulties. And uh, you know, some people. You know, I talked to a psychologist about this, and a lot of it isn't about money per se. It's it's about childhood, the pecking order, the way they were treated by their parents, uh, and some people get favoured and some don't. Why do you think people though will put themselves through much? 
through so much public pain. You know, when they sit back and look at it maybe 10 years later, as we're doing now, yeah, I and you look at the cost, the human cost, the financial cost, all those things that just are thrown out the window at the time. Yeah, I think there is... Um I think it's subsided a lot in recent years. I think the 80s and 90s, there was a particular time where, you know, a lot of public uh, things were are said in public. The other thing, aspect of it is, and I'm not trying to do down the legal profession, but if you, if two sides in a family or two members of a family go to different legal teams, the legal teams are only interested in winning the case. You know, whereas the family members may then later, after they've, washed all their dirty linen in public, you know, they may have to attend a family funeral, a wedding, and be sitting in the same room with each other. And that doesn't seem to... They get so involved in in the game or, or the yeah. conflict that they don't... They miss the bigger picture or and, in, in a lot of these and cases. And they don't really care because they're not, I don't, they're it, not it, personally involved. <laughs> the lawyers certainly know. They, they're going to get paid whichever side wins, especially if it's a big company, you know. And, and, and I suppose then finally, when when you look at the learnings here, uh, you know, should surely it's it's a basic that basically if you've got a problem with a brother or a sister or a father or a mother, sort it out, lads, yeah. and really keep it on the down low. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> or 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 get somebody who can that both sides can trust uh, to sort it out. Or else read this book and you won't definitely, although it's out of print for a good few years. And we hope that maybe after this conversation, Liam, that maybe uh, it might get back into print because it's a fascinating read. Well, thanks. It really is. Bobby and is, and uh, again, you've got, you've, what I loved about it as well is you've got all the photographs, like the old books used in the middle, <laughs> yeah. the pictures of the various uh, different, uh, I suppose, uh, casualties well, were... Proponents or otherwise. Yeah, they were casualties, but they were also very strong characters, most yeah. of them. And I think that's what, what makes it so interesting was this strength of character. Yeah. That they, they were prepared to um, to go the distance, you know. Some perceptive insights there from writer and journalist Liam Collins. From Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. And what if they can't articulate that? What if it's just a general feeling? They talk a lot, kids. I know mine certainly do about a, a feeling in their their tummy. Their tummy, yeah. It's this feeling in your tummy. I've had parents who've kind of landed with me after kind of GPs, after blood tests, after everything, trying to figure out this feeling in their tummy. And a lot of the time, that general kind of sense of kind of worry is often coming from society talking. It's often coming from that sense of, oh, I think mum and dad are worried about something. Oh, there's a sense of, they don't know what it is. So you're right, there is that sense of, so that's where as as parents, as society, we have to be careful about our use of language around anxiety. But for the most part, we can sit down with our kids and we can go, I I do an exercise with young people like, like you might see in the back of a manual. And I say, well, well let's troubleshoot it. Let's write down all the things that you're worried about that could go wrong today. And we troubleshoot it and then we come up with a solution for it. Okay, well, if that happens, what, what's going to, you know, what does that look like? Okay, but is that okay because you can do X, Y, or Z? And they go, oh, yeah, okay, I never thought of it like that. So we remove that sense of kind of foreboding almost. We remove that sense that this is awful, this is something we can't fix, and we move it into a space of, 
yeah, actually, do you know what? This is okay. I felt like this once before and I did this. Yeah, it does really take the power out of the word when you replace the word anxiety with worry, isn't it? I, I think it's huge. And the difference, you see the difference when you're working with people as well, when you remove that word. And it, it's a worry that we can do something about. So let's talk through some of them then that would be kind of common among kids. What if your kid is anxious about school, has separation anxiety, you're having lots of tears at the school gate, the clinging to the leg kind of thing? One of the key things that often works, and it doesn't work for everybody, and I'm very mindful when I talk like this, that I can I can generalise and each person's story is very different. A lot of the time the anxiety could be coming from the parent at the school gate, and they have the fear of letting go. They have the fear of what happens if they don't make friends. And that can often come from the parents. You know, the parents' memories of going into school and what it was like for them. So it, it's important, firstly, to look at the the bigger picture of it, I suppose. One of the big things I'm seeing with young people is the social anxiety. And I, I, I will term it as that in this, in, in this context. It's the fear of talking to people. And that is one thing that COVID has really caused, I suppose, for want of a better word, is we don't know how people are going to be. I've got, I've got young people who they rehearse full conversations in their heads. Well, if I say this, they might say that. And what if they say this back? Okay, well, then I won't say what I was going to say in the first place. So they rehearse. This is exhausting. So one of the key things I do, again, we go through the troubleshooting little guide with them. So the night before school, okay, what worries you about tomorrow? And again, what worries you? Not what, what has you anxious. What worries you? And then troubleshooting. I love to do little storyboards. Most kids love to draw. So let, let's draw it out. So what, what does it look like? Another useful thing to talk about with, it, with your kids is this concept of facts and feelings. Okay, so the feeling is worry. What are the facts that you have to back that up? When has anybody not talked to you? When has any teacher got cross with you? You know, so it's to, it's to but a lot of the time kids don't have facts to back up the feelings. You know, the, exa- the example I use is if somebody comes to see me in my office and I'm in floods of tears, I say, I can't work today because I've spilt, spilt my coffee. They might look at me, oh, I know coffee is important, but that's a bit extreme. The facts don't match the feeling. Some solid advice there from child psychologist Jennifer Ryan from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune in to Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some classic Henry McKean. Have a great weekend. And can you feed yourself by going through bins? Can you, you know, you look healthy, uh, you've got good teeth, you're fit, all from going through the bin. Once you start to understand how much waste there actually is, it is genuinely possible to feed yourself entirely from things that are either thrown into rubbish bins or free cycled or given away. Um, there's various apps that you can use to, to find food that people are going to throw out before they throw it out. Um, so you can absolutely do it. And uh, a friend of mine, in fact, did this to prove a point a couple of times now. She's gone an entire month of eating only food that was either free cycled or came out of bins. So that, that bin was open, but they don't always lock them, do they? A lot of them aren't locked, but then if I go to the one right next to it, it is locked. So um, it can be pretty random. Obviously, if something is locked, uh, don't go into it <laughs> um, if anyone's looking for advice. Because if you start getting to the point where you're jumping fences or you're breaking, um, breaking and entering, then... Because we're not breaking and entering right now. We're actually 
on a pavement outside. Yeah, absolutely. We're just standing on a street, and that's that's something that um, I would look for because that's my line that I've I've kind of decided for myself that I'm not going to be jumping fences um, to share the message and to to make a point. Um, but I will go to places where I know that the bins are just going to be on the street. So you can see there's... Oh, sandwiches. We found some sandwiches. sandwiches. Falafel wraps. Indeed. Oh, exciting. And this sludgy ketchup mixed so, in with a coffee cup. This is definitely one of the grosser ones, and they often are completely sanitary. Um, oh, I just got a whiff of that vinegary ketchup. <laughs> yeah, this this is a bad example. <laughs> we could. We, I mean, they are wrapped and cling. We, are, we could eat those... Uh, Falafel wraps. So they, they are probably triple made... wrapped in cling film, which is another thing that, for the purposes of dumpster diving, is good because it means that I can eat things. Why do they triple wrap them? Because do they know you're coming. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very polite. Um, no, unfortunately, it comes down to a couple of different things. One of them is that um, people have this weird idea of what cleanliness and hygiene is, and often to them it means that it has to be so completely wrapped that there is no chance of contamination. And then another thing is just um, presentation. So some things will be double wrapped or extra wrapped just so that they look better in the packaging, um, and that is really problematic because it means that we double the amount of plastic that we use for a sandwich. Okay, we've really found something now. This is this is good news. Free-range eggs. Some of them are broken. Some of them could be eaten. Yeah, so this is something that's quite common as well, is that you'll see a situation where, um, in this case, it's eggs, and it looks like what's happened is that maybe a pallet of eggs was dropped, or maybe it was uh, it had something heavy put on top of it, um, and so one or two of the eggs in each box would have cracked, and the entire box gets thrown out. And it's eggs in this situation, but I've also found this to be the case with um, bulk boxes of chocolate bars, with... Uh, Bulk packs of Guinness. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So I found everything uh, everything that comes in a multi-pack, if one of them gets damaged, the whole lot gets thrown out. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. It's time to take cover, people, and save yourselves with great value home cover from Super Value Insurance. You'll get a 15% online discount and shopping vouchers with every policy. That's a great deal for the cover you need anyway. All it takes is one big click or call. Just visit supervalue.ie slash insurance or call 0818 and our team will save the day without the drama. Terms and conditions apply. Vouchers include two 10 euro or 40 euro spend. Home contents only policies excluded. This home insurance is underwritten by AXA Insurance DAC. Supervalue Financial Services DAC trading in Supervalue Insurance is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland.